It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Did he also mention to me in the past that the, 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 the corruption related to the DNC server? Absolutely. No question about that. Um, but that's it. And that's why we held up the money. Now, there was a report. So, 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 so the demand for an investigation into the Democrats was part of the reason that he it was on the, to withhold funding to Ukraine. The, the look back to what happened in 2016 certainly was, was part of the thing that he was worried about in corruption with that nation. And that is holding, absolutely appropriate. Holding the funding. Yeah. Clearly, you just described is a quid pro quo. The new reporting shows that there were serious concerns raised by Trump administration officials about the propriety and legality of what the president was doing. I would expect those guys to share their opinions with the president. I'd also expect them to walk out and, uh, you know, either execute the president's wishes or, you know, just maybe even leave if they disagreed with the president. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So Susan Glasser at The New Yorker has a nominee for Word of the Year. And this time it's an import from the great language of Trump's forefathers, German. It's, and I'm going to really do this, it's Trump Regerung Schlammenschlasselschmerz, or rather Trumpschmerz. This word is analogous to Weltschmerz. You guys know this one, pain of the world, kind of pain of existence. Schmerz just to be pedantic here, gives us smarts in English, as in, ouch, that smarts, pain. Trump schmerz is the ambient pain we all experience in having Trump as president of the United States on our TVs, in our media, supersaturating our visual fields, our ears, our minds, his voice, his hair, his hysteria, his hacking away at everything. Ages ago, Yasha Monk said to me on this show that he hoped Trump would be maximally invasive, like a surgery. Why? Because minimally invasive fascists and tyrants, he said, ones you notice less as they use a kind of titrated acid to dissolve democracy rather than clubs, hatchets, AKs and chainsaws like Trump does. Those more sly, minimally invasive politicians to Yasha are more dangerous Because we, the people, don't see what's happening until it's too late. And we have certainly not missed what is happening to our country under Donald Trump. So small blessings. Trump, we can see in broad daylight, is banging around with jackhammers and everybody, and I mean everybody, wants it to stop. I even have a suspicion about traditional Republicans and evangelicals based on some of the events, many of the events of the past two weeks, and in particular, the response to Republicans stonewalling on the impeachment and the Christianity Today editorial that advocated the impeachment of Trump. My theory is that ordinary Americans, taxpayers, working families, possibly churchgoers, just want all of this to fucking go away. They want life to be normal again. They want a Hallmark movie where people are gently introduced to a lesbian marriage or interfaith relationships or whimsical social and ethnic harmony. And no one's talking about repealing amendments or seceding or civil war or QAnon. A world like we used to know with 
death and aging and birth and disease and pain and joy, but where the public square in general stays at normal decibels and ordinary exchanges with neighbors that are about as barbed as Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers and a pluribus unum. Normal America. And even for people who voted for Trump in 2016, Trump has become universally the opposite of normal America. Today, for today, I really suspect that voters in 2020, and 2020 starts tomorrow, they'll vote for normalcy, whatever that looks like, even if voting for it means staying home from the polls for a nice normal day at the office or in front of the Hallmark Channel. Someone who's taken the temperature of the abnormality and lived to tell about it, fortunately for us, is one Olivia Nutzi of New York Magazine. Something satisfying for those of us who are somewhat older than the enchanting Miss Nutzi is that she's obsessed with magazines in the way New Yorkers were obsessed with them in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s when I got here. She knows their histories, their pros and the tricks and how magazine journalists do their work. And she has brought all that to Washington, D.C. and her coverage of this administration. So part of my interview with her is about how she, interesting person that she is, came to do the incredibly intimate and bold voiced reporting that she does. And part of it is about those two Trump schmerz inducing savages whom Olivia knows far too well, Rudolph Giuliani and Don, you know who I mean. Welcome, Olivia. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you. And I'm a little starstruck because you are like a comet in our times. Oh, that's horrifying. (laughs) I was going to ask you, how has it been for you over the last three years? You sort of broke on the scene when you worked for Anthony Weiner. That was, what, seven years ago? Something like seven years ago? I think, yeah, it was in 2013. The summer of 2013 is when that happened. Okay. And then up to the present moment where you're getting increasingly erratic texts from the president's personal pro bono lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. (laughs) So maybe walk us through, if you can, how you became the reporter that you are now, the journalist you are now. Well, uh, I'm a Capricorn. Okay. Uh, I'm just kidding. So happy birthday. Thank you. You know, it's all been a blur the last several years. I got assigned the Trump beat when that did not seem like a very attractive assignment. You and me both. You and me both. (laughs) Trump cast so long ago, thought it would last a month. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember to this day, the day of his announcement speech, I had interviewed Donald Trump that fall. And I was interviewing him about Atlantic City casinos because I covered Chris Christie. I'm from New Jersey. Uh, And I wrote a lot about Governor Christie and the subtext always being, you know, whether or not he was going to make a serious run for president. And that's when I first interviewed Donald Trump. And I remember at the end of my interview with him, I think this was in like November of 2014. Mm -hmm. I felt like he was waiting for me at some point during the interview to ask him about whether or not he would run for president, because at that point Mm. he had been toying with the idea publicly for like a decade, more than that. And I kind of felt like it would be rude for me to not ask. (laughs) And so at the end of the interview, I really didn't care because it didn't seem like a serious thing. He was kind of like the boy who cried campaign. But I said, so, you know, are, are you thinking about 2016? And he seemed, you know, he was waiting for me to ask that question. And he, I'm paraphrasing, Mm -hmm. but he said something like, well, you know, I'm thinking about it. I'm looking at it. I'm thinking very seriously. Um, You know, if the country needs me or something like that, then then I'll 
probably do it. And mm. I remember I wrote it up for the Daily Beast where I worked at the time. And, you know, the piece was basically like, Donald Trump says he might run for 2016, run for president 2016. Again, he's been saying this for so long. You know, we'll see if it pans out. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember the piece ended with like, stay tuned or something like that. And then right. a couple months later, the Daily Beast, there was like a pretty strict policy about like not covering Donald Trump and like anything that he said uh, that was inflammatory or, you know, we, we tried to not amplify that too much before he was running for president. Mm-hmm. And then obviously that all went out the window. But I remember my editor calling me and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, but can you just write up? He's doing this event. You only have to cover him for this one day. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> all right, fine, sure. And then you know, however many months later, I was sitting next to her at the Republican convention in Cleveland, like, mm-hmm. fuck you, I can't believe I'm still doing this. Yes. And yeah, it's been pretty much nonstop since June 16th, 2015. And it's very difficult for me to, um, it feels like I've just been kind of like running on one breath in all that time, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And it's been disorienting. I, I don't really remember, I don't remember what life was like before he was constantly looming over all of my thoughts and and my activities. There was a time my 10-year-old daughter said that when we walked around the neighborhood, that every conversation I had with anyone I ran into, it presupposed, or we didn't even need to have an antecedent. It was just always he. (laughs) He, He. yes, he. Do you believe what he's doing? It's an ongoing story as if we were all, you know, married to the same abuser or something. And I, I sort of thought that was a good point. And of course, all of us have made efforts to disengage somehow, or at least engage on our own terms. Have you tried to do anything like that? Well, I find, you know, with my White House coverage, you know, I'm lucky because I work for a magazine and we're on a a slower timeline than the papers or the networks. And so I don't have to kind of you know, drink from the fire hose of news every mm-hmm. day, but just trying to mm-hmm. keep up with what the hell is happening is impossible. Um, and I'm overwhelmed by it constantly. But um, I do find when I'm at the White House a lot and I'm doing a lot of White House reporting for a specific story that after that story is published, I tend to kind of retreat. And now mm-hmm. you know, I'm working on a, a book with Ryan Lizza about the 2020 campaign and we're covering mm-hmm. a lot of Democrats as a result. And obviously that's just an interesting story as well. And I'm covering them for the magazine too. But I find it's kind of like, I don't know, like I have divorced parents or something like when I'm sick of covering the White Mm. House and I can't deal with them anymore and like my head is spinning and I feel like I'm going crazy. I kind of retreat and go out on the campaign trail and hang out with the Democratic candidates and their supporters. And then after I do that for a while, and I'm kind of like cleansed by that, um, Mm -hmm, which is crazy in a different way, um, a very, very different way, then, you know, I go back and I do another White House story. And I kind of am always ping-ponging between those two worlds. One thing that also that you have done, bless you, so the rest of us haven't had to, is deal with some of these people in person. And I think I've said on this show before, I I read a little bit of Malcolm Gladwell's new book. I can't pretend I read the whole thing. I sort of stood (laughs) up in the bookstore. But the first 15 pages are about how if you meet someone, a sort of weird irony that I guess he discovered is that if you meet someone in person, you can sometimes be less well-equipped to predict what they'll do. Because they seem so multifaceted. He had all these examples of Halifax and Chamberlain meeting Hitler and coming away thinking, you know, what an asshole. He's a rube. He's awful. But I don't think he's going to invade Poland, where Churchill could see from a distance, you know, what he thought of him in much simpler terms. 
And he did see that aggression in him. Do you feel like you've been able, because you've seen so many dimensions, and as you say, you you talked to Trump face-to-face years ago and, you know, have seen so many dimensions to all these people. How do you think that's affected your capacity to determine what they're doing to the country? You know, I, I don't really know. I guess, you know, I think there is a lot of room for different types of coverage, thankfully. And what I do, you know, I, I mostly write like feature and profiles. That's very different than what somebody like uh, David Fahrenthold does or, or somebody like Jonathan Swan at Axios. I think there's room for, for all of that coverage. Yeah. I think about the criticism that I get a lot, um, particularly from the left, about humanizing these people and whether or not that is an okay thing to do. And it's something that I, I think about a lot and I feel differently about depending on what the story is that I'm being criticized for or depending on how self-loathing I'm feeling that day. Yeah. Um, and I'm always kind of going over, you know, my pieces and thinking, you know, what I should have done differently or how I could have done it better. And so I guess it's something that I think about a lot, but I don't know if I've come to any profound conclusions. Like I try, I think there's tremendous value for me in getting to know my subjects and sources personally. Yeah. Often I come away hating them more <laughs> than yeah, I yeah, would yeah. have if I if I had kept distance. But, you know, for what I do, I feel like it's it's necessary. I'm not gonna mm-hmm. write a profile of somebody without, you know, trying as best as I can to get to know them on, yeah. on a personal level. You have an, a very nice, and from your first, I think you're one of your first published pieces about your father, you have a, a really extraordinary way, not just of engaging with your subjects, but of keeping your head clear about them, you know? So like Giuliani continues to trust you. Well, maybe he's blocking you now. I know it goes back and forth. <laughs> but you also never leave him with the impression that you think he's like a dandy, charming dude, you know? So somehow he talks to you even though he knows that you mock him (laughs) and also dislike him. Yeah, Giuliani is an interesting case because we, when I hung out with him recently for an interview, it happened after he had been really furious with me and had like blocked my number and we could only communicate via like email and WhatsApp um, because I couldn't return his like iMessages because he blocked me and I guess didn't realize that. Yes. (laughs) And or didn't know what that means in practice. Yeah. And I don't know if this is why he came around and started talking to me again but he was like berating me via email late at night. He'd gotten really upset because I said uh, in a story about Joe Biden that Joe Biden like seems like a like a nice guy or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. He seems like a good person, something like that. Because he just does. Sorry. Yeah. And he was like, oh, you're so biased. Uh, we can, this is useless. We shouldn't talk. And I kind of like uh, was goading him like, oh, come on, like you're a New Yorker. That's not how we resolve our conflicts. Like, let's have a fight face to face. Good. Yeah. I don't think he ever replied to that. But then like he started answering me again. And But with him, he's so like when I broached that subject in person, he kind of looked like he didn't know what I was even talking about. Hmm. And so I don't know if it's like he just didn't care or didn't want to talk about it or didn't think it was interesting and just wanted to talk about his own stuff. Or he had just like, gotten over it and moved on. I don't know. Or he just wasn't aware of it and didn't realize that, like, I was the person he'd been fighting with. (laughs) I wasn't sure. But I guess I, I mean, I try, you know, in response to that article after Giuliani got mad at me, I talked about this a little bit on Twitter, where, like, I try 
other journalists obviously have very different strategies. And, you know, I'm not saying this is the correct strategy. It's just what works for me and what makes me feel like less of a jerk. Like I Mm -hmm. try to make sure that people are not surprised by what I write. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they are Mm -hmm. anyway. Yes, you said that recently, which is, by the way, I mean, I have such a hard time with profiles because part of my head is in the Janet Malcolm world of like, I know I'm going to betray you, whoever the nice person I'm talking to is. But I'm never somehow able you know, once I get home and I never have to deal with them again, I don't want to deal with their responses. I don't, yeah. you know, I don't even want to think about them. But you, do, I yeah, feel so differently I mean. about you, that. I, I, you know, I was okay. talking to another, I had two conversations with a journalist recently about this. And one was, I, I was mm-hmm. in Iowa and I went out to dinner with a presidential candidate and uh, with a friend of mine who's also a journalist. And mm-hmm. I wasn't even aware of it as it was happening. But after the dinner, my friend said, oh, my God, you, like, fight with these people. <laughs> yes. And I was like, oh, I guess I do. And I, I guess I had said something that uh, had offended or, like, upset this presidential candidate. And I just was like, oh, like, you know, who, who gives a shit? We continue to have the conversation. Uh, yes. But my friend was like, you know, that's not the strategy that I employ. I normally am just kind of like, yes, uh-huh, uh-huh, tell me more. Yeah. And, like, yeah. I agree with them no matter how crazy what they're saying uh-huh. is. Yes. Um, and sometimes I do, obviously, if I want someone to keep explaining something, I just say, and what do you mean by that, over and over again while they, like, mm-hmm. hang themselves. And then I was talking to another journalist, like, the other day about this where I, I was – particularly tormented about something that day. I can't remember what it was. And I was just saying, you know, do you still think about the people that you profile after the fact? And they said, like, not really. Like, every once in a while, I'll think about somebody that I spent a lot of time with. But basically, no is the answer. And I was, like, really, I couldn't believe that because I find myself, like, always thinking about the people that I've spent time. I don't think it's healthy. And like, I don't know if it's a good strategy for doing this, but I'm always thinking about the people who have like trusted me to do this, you know, inherently risky kind of stupid thing and like what it means that they trusted me and like, did I fuck it up? And was I tough enough? Mm -hmm. And did I take any shots just for the sake of like protecting myself from what I know yes. the criticisms will be. I think about these things like constantly and I'm always tormented by it and I feel awful all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I love Ashley Feinberg sometimes. I don't know. She's like something in the same manner about sort of figuring in her own emotional state into into her work too, which I think is something else that young journalists have brought to the equation that didn't exist. It, it was a little bit like lo- magazine journalists could sometimes be really voicey like you or be emotional and swaggery and have that Hunter S. Thompson thing. But, but I don't know. You guys do something else that I, I can't quite put my like, finger on it. feels very new. What I, what I do I don't feel like is very new. You know, I kind of I see in my work, you know, it's just a product of decades of new journalism and decades of the type of journalism that New York Magazine has been publishing since 1968. And for the record, has done so well during Trump. I think they've done it really well. But but what Ashley does is totally, feels totally new to me and like totally fresh and it's so different from what I do, but is obviously extraordinarily valuable in an entirely different, profound way on its own. Um, But there is, you know, that element obviously of like, you feel like you, when you read her, unpack some kind of 
investigation, you feel like yeah. you're like right there with her and like you kind of get a sense of, of what she's thinking, even though we don't really know. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's that the that really testosterone new journalism of like, and here we are getting high together and, you know, <laughs> um, sharing a girlfriend or whatever is like the guy version of you just saying, I'm filled with anxiety all the time, <laughs> which like kind of thing that Ashley does, which is like that your emotions are part of it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I actually want to jump to something I think is related, which is just that thing that you said to to Giuliani, which is we're New Yorkers. That's not how we resolve things. You know, you don't just silence someone. You have it out with them. And this is also something you bring to the table. It reminds me in a different key of what Vicki Ward has been able to do with the Epstein set and with Ghislaine Maxwell and the Kushners and Ivanka, which is she is from this posh British set. So somehow she always got invited to parties where she would run into Ivanka. And she basically just like kept her eyes open and her ears open and took in this whole scene and how people interact with each other and then was able, when it broke open, to write about it. And you, as you say, are kind of first and foremost a New Yorker. You know, you're not like... I grew up in um, New Jersey, but I, I was born there. But yeah, well, I grew your up father's, in Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> your father's... Okay, I should say, tri-state area, right? And and northern New Jersey, yes? Oh, uh, central. But yeah, it's like no one who isn't from there knows the difference between northern and central. <laughs> oh, got it. Okay, okay. It's like not too far from the soprano land or whatever. Yeah, yeah. At least some of that idiom was familiar to you. And also, you know, your dad was from Brooklyn. And so you have been able to appeal to... I mean... The New York contingent that went down or it, it works in Washington and that sometimes seemed to have completely taken over at various it waxes and wanes. And sometimes there's the John Boltons and the McConnells that are high in the mix. But at other times, there's Scaramucci, there's Michael Cohen, there's Rudolph Giuliani, mm -hmm. there's Donald Trump himself, who really just bring that New York thing that lots of Americans are not familiar with, you know, including New Yorkers. I mean, I've lived here 30 years, but I still think of myself as a New Hampshireite, you know? Right. And, and it's been reporters like you who've been able to basically go like mano a mano with a Giuliani, who like right. I would run from. I think Maggie Haberman's like the best example of this. Like yes. I was reading, she did yes. a great piece with, I think it was with Matt Flagenheimer the other day about Bloomberg and his mayoral race. And I was reading it and I was just thinking, first of all, how lucky are some of us that like all of these New York characters are just constantly relevant <laughs> in, know, in presidential politics yes. that we cover. Um, but also just how lucky are we that like someone like Maggie Haberman, who has these roots in yes. the New York tabloids, who has an understanding of Donald Trump that goes, you know, far beyond what I think a lot of other, what a lot of Washington journalists, how yep. they understand him. We're very lucky to have her covering him because she gets something that I don't think that you can get unless you're really of that universe. Unless you, yeah. you know, I grew up reading, my dad would bring home the New York 
Post and the New York Daily News every day. Oh, both. Both. And very I, ecumenical households. <laughs> well, I thought that the Daily News is like a very serious paper compared to the Post because I would read them both yeah. every day. And that was why I ended up agreeing to write that story by Anthony Weiner for them because I didn't think of them as a tabloid. I was like, oh, well, they're like dignified. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Obviously did not pan out as I expected. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think there sometimes when I see Trump at the White House, I kind of have this like, oh, like this fucking guy, like he's this guy is here. It's so it's not just like, oh, he's Donald Trump. He's not a politician. He he doesn't understand like our democratic norms or, you know, he doesn't care about democracy and all the things that, you know, we could talk about with his politics that are uh, concerning and problematic or offensive. Like, it's just like, oh, this guy who like, you know, really just shouldn't be here geographically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's very strange to see him in this setting. It's sort of like a a, some kind of like almost a sight gag. Like I think Sasha Baron Cohen says that about Ali G that like he dressed up in those clothes just for the childish sight gag of having people see him near Buzz Aldrin or near some, you know, politician and or like a kind of Beverly Hillbillies or like that one where Paris Hilton went to the country, whatever, <laughs> you know, reality shows. The simple life. You put, yeah, you, never forget. Yeah, fish out of water kind of thing. And uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I haven't been there to like see him in the Rose Garden. But sometimes when, you know, you think of I mean, Melania's just ridiculous taste in decorating or just any of it in collision with that architecture and that history. It just seems it's just um, like a kind of like uncanny heebie-jeebies feeling. You know, yeah, it's very strange. I don't really know how I would describe it. But I remember I, I interviewed Trump um, in the Oval Office last fall. And at the end of our conversation, I can't remember if I put this in the story or not, but as I was like walking out, he in like true Trump fashion, like wanted to continue talking and his press aides were like, no, like you have to stop now. <laughs> like we're, she's leaving. Wow. And he was like, uh, oh, New York Magazine, Clay Felker. Like he just threw out the name of our oh founder. Oh my God. Our founder yes. who's been, you know, who is a genius, but has not been alive for like, I think since <laughs> 2008 yep. or five um and i was like right he didn't say anything else he just was like clay felker and i was like right <laughs> and he was like you know i used to live near your uh office like like i don't know where trump used to live in new york and trump tower i was like oh really like i think i remember that yeah but he just like clearly wanted to talk about new york like he misses new york i think that's why he has the uh connection that he seems to have with the times and why he continues to speak to the times when other people are like, you know, why would he continue doing that if he hates them so much? It's like part of it, I think, is he wants their approval and, Mm -hmm. you know, he wants to feel like they accept him. But I think another part of it is like he misses uh, his old life and he feels very alien here. Yeah. I, I Maybe mean, I'm projecting. Right. I mean, I feel alien here, but <laughs> um, right. Clay Felker is not like a household name there. No, I mean, obviously, it's... I would know that, but I was just like, uh, no, of course, like, yeah, yeah. Let's talk he just about wants that. to be like, <laughs> do you right? Do you know my like old home dudes? Yeah, the, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely kind of a shorthand. You know, you mention here in New York where your kids go to school and then it's just like, oh, my friend went to school there or, you know, just it's instant, you know, and just even saying the syllables Clay Felker to you is an effort to signify you're similar. You have this bond in common. I have to ask you this. I know there's something that you haven't said about Trump in person that I hope you will say between us. 
and for listeners, some small thing about his comportment, about his speech, about his psychology, about his appetites, about his intelligence. That's something that, you know, only someone who's really spent time with him and kept her head clear would know. I wouldn't say I like really spent time with him. You know, I've interviewed him like a few times. Um, and, yeah. you know, I think the longest interview I ever had with him was like 30 minutes. So I, I haven't spent like a great deal of time with him, but I would love to if anyone is listening who could make that happen, please call me. <laughs> but, you know, one of the weirdest things about him is uh, there are always reports about him screaming and yelling. And obviously, when you see him at on stage at his rallies, he's projecting his voice a lot and he looks amped up. But when he is sitting down and talking, he has like a very, if you read the text on the page, you assume that he's being quite animated and um, conversational and, hmm. uh, you know, He's talking like you or I would. He's if I were to perform it, I would my voice would be in different tones and pitches, and uh, it would sound human. And mm-hmm. when he talks at length, you know, in in monologue, it's very quiet and it's like a very low tone. That's almost it's almost like monotone. It's very strange. He's very mm. calm, and that's strange to me because you know when you read his text on the page or you watch him at a rally or on a television interview, he just seems very um, animated. And to like, I had watch no... that spew out of him in like a very calm, almost like zen-like state is very strange. And I, I don't know what that's about, but that always sticks with me. And also he's very soft hands. Like his hands are extraordinarily soft in like a, hmm. a weird way, I think. Okay, so you say Zen. Is it possible that he, he, when he's in one of those monologues, and I've observed this being around people in their 70s and 80s who tend to monologue instead of falling silent, that there's a kind of like self-stimulation fugue state or something? Like Maybe. he forgets who he's talking to. He's using strings of phrases that he's used before. Definitely that. I mean, okay. definitely because he says a lot of the same stuff that he has said a thousand times before when he's talking in monologue. You know, like you could probably mm-hmm mouth along with him as he talks. Yeah. So maybe it's he's just tapping into like his script in his head and he's focused on yeah. that. I don't know. But like I was comparing it in my head when you asked us to like how Giuliani talks because Giuliani yes. talks in monologue as well and he like large chunks of text. If you look at the transcript, it's like paragraphs of him talking and then you know, me being like, huh? And then him talking again for another couple paragraphs. Um, yep. And he is like, it's like he's auditioning for Law and Order or something. He's like super dramatic. Um, he He's hmm. like very performative. Um, he's very compelling. Like a lot of the stuff he's saying, I was like, wow, that's like a, it's crazy. Like what you're saying is absolutely fucking crazy. However, the hmm. way that you said it was <laughs> very compelling. And it's it was good like, copy. it was a really good argument, even though it's crazy bullshit. Like it still sounded yeah. good. And I could see how someone like not brushed up on like the Ukraine scandal might be compelled by this. When he was talking, I kept thinking like, oh my God, it sounds like Scorsese wrote this. Wow. Whereas Trump, I'm never like, if you, I mean, if you watch a Trump rally, you're never like, wow, what a beautiful turn of phrase, you know? Yes, that's a good point. He, right, he doesn't land, He and he also doesn't land a point. My brother's an actor and he's interested in how people use their physicality to land a point. Like he's afraid of being interrupted, right? So he doesn't leave enough space 
to make a point. Yeah, and I always, you know, when you're like in the Rose Garden or the East Room or something, it's pretty close quarters, so it's easier to see this as it happens in the moment. But like hmm. Trump's at the podium, and then in the Rose Garden, let's say there are like two gigantic flat screen TVs with his words printed on them as a teleprompter, like not a standard glass pane teleprompter, like just two huge TVs in the press scrum with his speech on it. And the letters are like the size of your head. It pauses when he's um, ad-libbing and then it picks Mm -hmm. back up again when he starts reading from the script again. And sometimes it seems like he is kind of like slowly collecting what is on the screen while he's Mm ad-libbing and then he picks back up again when he's ready to like say it all at once and sometimes it sounds like he's Ah. reading it for the first time because he's like commenting on it you know he'll be like you know this many uh undocumented immigrants came into the country in 2014 he'll say something like huh yeah look at that would you believe that (laughs) like he'd never heard it before (laughs) right even though it came out of his mouth Yeah. yeah like he definitely didn't like read this before he came out here but i always think that's interesting to watch him kind of he appears to like be keeping his eye on the screen as if he's you know absorbing everything on it and then he says it rather than reading along as he would if you were reading a teleprompter. So we have all over the place people saying, going back to Rod Rosenstein considering the 25th Amendment or rumors that he did, and we have Bandy Lee at Yale with a whole team of psychiatrists saying that he's mentally incompetent. George Conway has written about him having a personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, very seriously documenting what he thinks makes him unfit to lead. When you're with him, instead of asking you to make a diagnosis, when you're with him or when you see him, do you feel like you're in the presence of someone who's mentally disturbed? Like, you know how sometimes you might find yourself at a family table and everybody makes room for the aunt who's like just a little cracked? Like she just repeats things I'm that or aunt. does some... I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm heading toward, as, as, as listeners know, batty British pensioner is where I hope all of this ends up. I have to turn British before it happens, but the rest, the battiness I have down. But I mean, well, okay, maybe people are making room for us as, you know, whatever we are. But you know how, like, there's just a general pact yeah. that if someone's on a subway train or if someone is just dominating the conversation and maybe not listening or, like, has some cognitive problem that, you know, you're going to accommodate it, but that's what's happening. You know, it's not a normal conversation. Do you feel like the rest of the press corps and you are doing that with him? Like, do you feel like you're around a mentally compromised person? Uh, I mean, I don't He's so strange. I think that people react to his strangeness. And I don't, I don't know what the source of that strangeness is. I don't know if, you know, George Conway is correct or any of the psychiatrists who have, you know, come out to speculate about what may or may not be wrong with him. I don't know if they're correct, but he's deeply strange, regardless of what the source of that is. And so I think people are always reacting to that. I mean, I always feel like we're in like a Nat Geo documentary or like Planet Earth 2 or something. And we're like, you know, you don't. Because even though he seems predictable and, like, he says a lot of the same stuff, um, he reacts in a lot of the similar ways. There seems to be a pattern with his behavior. You know, in the moment, if you're at a press conference, like, you don't know if he's going to start yelling at Jim Acosta. You don't know if he's going to, like—I mean, that day, I remember in the East Room when they had, like, their 
pretty intense argument, and、mm-hmm. it resulted in I think them coming to take the microphone away from Acosta. I remember being、yeah. like genuinely nervous. <laughs> I was sitting there and I was like, "Oh goodness!、Yeah. Like, what is going to happen here?" I was like, "There, there was like a funny reaction photo of me, like." Just like in the background, sitting there, where like my face looks like really, really concerned because I thought like it might get physical. I don't know. You don't. You、yeah. really don't know、um, in a situation like that. He does act like it's the New York streets in the seventies and eighties of like the "What do you want for nothing?" and people slamming on tr- on、um, totally. everyone yelling out of their taxi windows and rear-ending people on purpose、yeah. and just you know just that crazy aggression. Yeah, but I don't. I don't know if I think. I mean. I think it's just people. It's a he's deeply strange, and B he is the most powerful person in America. And so when I see when I watch staff interact with him, or even when he was just a candidate, when you watch staff in Trump Tower interact with him, they're very deferential. I think because he's the boss, he's this rich celebrity, and. I think there's like that aspect of it, as well as the fact that now, obviously, he's president of the United States, and he is a unpredictable,、um, seemingly crazy person.、Um, I think it's a combination of things. One thing that observers from far away are always curious about is why why there aren't more Jim Acostas, why there aren't more people who just. Shout out wrong, 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 wrong the whole time he's talking, or like、mm-hmm. they just, or just flip the script somehow and box him in, or you know at least do what European leaders do and like snub him in physical ways, or、mm-hmm. just somehow contain him and bring him up short and make him accountable.、Um, it, it, you know, my guess is, and I feel like Ivanka just did this on Face the Nation, that something in them makes. People grovels too strong a word, but just makes people afraid. I think Jim Comey even said it that it would be too awkward to refuse him. That it's he's created this context where it really takes an insane force of will, and you're a person who talks back to your subjects. Like、uh-huh. you will confront Giuliani. I mean, what do you think stops maybe other people? Who deal with him one on one from just confronting him? I don't know. You know, I I think back to that. Interview in the Oval Office, and I don't mean to like keep talking about that because I hate when yeah, reporters、no, do that. But I remember sitting there, and I more than anything, I wanted him to keep talking. It was、yeah. an extraordinary、yes. scene, and I wanted、yeah. to absorb as much. I was on no sleep, and I, I was supposed to have a、yeah. a story to my editor that morning、um, that did not exist, <laughs> and I had like stayed up all night writing like six hundred words about like.、Uh, John Kelly's like military career for no reason because it was a story about John Kelly that ended up not being used, and I was just like exhausted, and I was trying to be very deliberate with everything that I said, and I remember sitting there as he's rambling on and just kind of waiting for. First of all, when is there even a moment to get a word in、yeah. to push back、yeah. at him? Because the way that he talks, it's like. The words connect with each other. The sentences connect. He doesn't pause to take、mm-hmm. breaths. There's no natural. It's not a conversation. I guess is、mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. And when I jumped in to to make a point or to ask him to clarify something, like what would be the best use of my time here? That's、mm-hmm. what I was thinking about in the moment. And I was very aware that like I'm obviously recording this. I'm sure someone in the White House is recording this.、Um, besides just wanting to do like a good job and wanting to. 
hold myself in like a respectable way, I also was aware that like people might listen to this and would obviously have their criticisms of it. And I just remember thinking it was just better most of the time in that conversation to just let him continue to talk. Because right. I was not going to, if I said to him, oh, you just cited that Rasmussen poll and uh, I know that you're off by four points in your approval, just as one example. Like, okay, what, what is he going to say? He's At best, he's going to be like, okay, whatever, and keep talking. Um, yeah, yeah, or yeah. he's going to get really irritated and cut this short. And I just wanted more of him yep. on the record. And I think any journalist can relate to that when you're when you have like a great when you're aware that you're in the middle of like an incredible moment Mm -hmm. you just want it to go on he also called in pence and kelly oh yeah i did not want it to end and i i mean there were moments though like when i go back when i think about that transcript i haven't gone back to it um because that would be insane but i thinking about (laughs) it now like there were a few moments where you know i pushed back like he said something about um anonymous sources and i was like well don't you cite anonymous sources all the time? And I think he just, like, ignored me and kept on talking. Mm-hmm. Or he either ignored me or he said something like, no, well, and then kept going. And, right. you know, there were moments when I interjected. But, like, what am I going to do? Have a fight with him about his immigration Absolutely. policy? You're not Adam Schiff. You know, you're not, you're I not mean, f- prosecuting. I just didn't. If I knew that, like, it would lead somewhere, I would do it. If, it, if we were on camera i would probably be uh, comport myself in a very different way but i think like Mm -hmm. i think a lot of the time you just want to get as many of your questions in as possible and that's in any scenario but then i think about jim acosta like i think that jim is great at his job i think that he there is space for someone to uh ask the types of questions that he does and and relate Mm -hmm. to the president as he does just as there's space for Jonathan Carl or someone like that who mm-hmm. behaves in a in a very different way. But a lot of times, you know, you leave a situation where they had some kind of spat and other reporters are really irritated because that becomes the story of the day. The story of the day is Trump versus the media. And nobody learns anything. We just confirm everything we've already known. Reporters are pissed off that they didn't get to ask the questions that they'd been planning to ask, that they didn't get to press the president on the news of mm-hmm. the day, because everything gets diverted and it becomes this sideshow, which is exactly what the president wants when he goes after somebody like Jim Acosta. Yeah. I'm not saying that I disagree with what Acosta does. I think what he does is works for him, and I think mm-hmm. there is space for it. But I, I understand the criticisms of it as well. But I also, sorry if I'm rambling like Trump. Not at and all. you can't get a word in. But, like, <laughs> in the briefing room, you know, people always used to, when they had briefings, people always used to say, just boycott it, don't go. And it's like, why would I do that? Why would we not take right. an opportunity to question these people on the record if we can take it? Like, it's not like by being there, we're telling them we agree with the way that you're handling things and we support your policies. You know, mm-hmm. it's just... I don't think anything would be accomplished. And now we have no briefings, yep. and I think we have less information. And also in the, in the setting of, like, a joint press conference, there are very, very few questions that are actually asked. I, there are probably, like, five questions asked. And the mm-hmm. way that it's done, it's not like – I mean, it's like they walk over and they hand the person the microphone, and then they get the microphone, and they walk over, and they hand it to somebody else. You ask a question of – President Trump, and you ask a question of the foreign leader, and they both have an opportunity to answer. It's not like the type of thing where 
you that it's really conducive to like having a fight. And so I guess, I mean, when I'm at the White House, when I see reporters question the president, I do see them push back, but I don't mm-hmm. see them most of the time arguing with him about like the merits of his policies. And I think that's what people mm-hmm. want. And I understand why they want that. But when you're in a gaggle setting or a press conference setting, yeah. I think it's very yep. hard to do that. And I think a lot of r- reporters, you know, especially television reporters, cannot behave that way. They would not have their jobs if they did. I think that's right. And I, I, you've got me convinced. I think sometimes maybe too much on TV, we want, um, and I'm especially thinking of this Face the Nation interview that Ivanka Trump did over the weekend, you want the reporter to be a proxy for us, you know, and all the things that you've like lain in bed thinking like, I wish I could just say this to Ivanka's face, you know, and it could be instead that the best thing is for the reporter to kind of let them reveal themselves I don't know. so that then we can have our own. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that that, that interview was really silly and mm-hmm. pointless in a lot of ways. And I thought that, um, you know, I have a lot of respect for, for uh, Margaret Brennan, but I also think that a lot of the criticisms of that interview were completely valid. Um, mm-hmm. And it didn't, it felt like, uh, it felt like a softball interview. And I think that, we certainly shouldn't be doing that. Um, but I also could totally see how that happens. You know, if you yeah. are, you fight back and forth. I'm not saying I agree with this. Please don't yell at me or write me emails. <laughs> but like, I, I you could totally see how like, you fight back and forth for months to get access to somebody and you mm-hmm. have them in the chair finally and you're talking to them and it's this big get for you. And how this interview pans out will determine how easy it will be for you to get access to the people that you want to interview in the administration going forward. I'm just guessing. I can't speak for Margaret Brennan. I can see how you feel like maybe it would not be worthwhile to push back really hard. Or maybe it would just be better to just let her speak because she so rarely does in this type of setting. I think that was a failure in that particular instance, but I could totally see how that happens. Okay, one last thing. Giuliani, where do, you, where do you stand in his avuncular, weird confession, you know, mother-confessor relationship with you? Is he is he talking to you? Is he mad at you? Where he, are things right now? He is mad at me. You know, he called me. I sent him the story after it was published, and I didn't hear mm-hmm. from him for a while. And then I saw another reporter, someone at NBC, had reached out to him, and he said he hadn't read the story, and he, like, doubled down on his crazy uh, comments about George Soros. Um, And then later in the day, he called me to yell at me, but he had only read, like, five paragraphs of the story, and I was like, why don't you call me back (laughs) after you read the rest of it? Yeah. He wasn't upset initially. He was upset that I had characterized him as having told me about his business interests in Ukraine, which is just objectively what he fucking did. Not my fault that he did that. But he was making the distinction that he did not currently have any active business interest in Ukraine. And therefore, it was wrong for me to say that he explained his business interests in Ukraine to me, even though that is what he did. Got it. And then later when he called me to yell at me again, 
uh, he said that his his daughter, who's a liberal, had told him not to to stop calling me, but he was doing it anyway. Hmm. Then he he said, I you know I took some cheap shots. I shouldn't have described him drooling or falling into the wall or any of these things. Mm-hmm. But mostly he was he angry. Did he did. It's not my fault. Um, but he. Yeah. <laughs> He mostly he was angry about the business interest in Ukraine thing, which I think is very interesting and really just makes me wonder what his actual business interests in Ukraine are that he did not tell yes. me about. But I still, you know, even though I I think I would write what I wrote about him again, um, I I did. There was a big debate about whether or not to include um, some of those details. Um, and ultimately, including, I, the including saliva. yeah, that he was drooling onto himself, <laughs> and that he, you know, I think. Can that, I just read for <laughs> for listeners? I have to read these two sentences. This is Rudolf Giuliani sitting with Olivia at the Mark Hotel and drinking. We're having some Bloody Marys. When his mouth closed, saliva leaked from the corner and crawled down his face through the valley of a wrinkle. He didn't notice, and it fell on his sweater. I mean. Can we just realize that we are talking about someone at the center of an impeachment of the president? Right. I mean, that was my argument. Also, someone who has been like, it, look, if he had if he had noticed and he endeavored to wipe the saliva away, I probably would yeah. not have mentioned it. But I thought so much about that. I, I wrote like a memo about why I should include the saliva in the story. There, right. I, I, I hope no one's mad at me for for revealing that at your magazine. But like, I was like no. very pro including saliva. I think that's incredibly important. I just think if he noticed it and he had wiped it away, I would have been like, fine. Like, who who hasn't drooled in when they when they didn't mean to? And I would have left it alone. But the fact that he, I think the way that somebody who was acting as an unofficial but like president sanctioned representative of the United States government abroad, how they represent themselves is really important for us to know. Absolutely. And Absolutely. we don't have him on the stand. He hasn't been a part of the uh, proceeding so far. And I think yeah. obviously we see him on television. People know what he's like if they watch his interview with Chris Cuomo or on Hannity. But, like, when I saw – I kept thinking – I had a line like this in the piece, and I took it out because I thought I didn't need to explain it to this degree. I thought it was evident. But I just Mm -hmm. kept thinking, this is so much worse up close than it seems, even on television. Mm. And I was Mm -hmm. really, like – I was kind of fucked up by it at the end of the day. Like, I was so – it was a, like, four-hour interview – and when I left, Amazing. I was just like totally disoriented. I had a ba- uh, I don't drink beer. I had a beer on the train home because I was so stressed. Um, yeah, and I yeah, was yeah. really like, I don't know, just disoriented by the whole thing and like yeah. could not stop telling people about it because I could not believe it. I mean, I'm so glad. I hope you'll keep at it, but also make sure it doesn't take too much of a toll on you. <laughs> My guest has been Olivia Nutzi. She's a staff writer at New York Magazine. Thanks so much for being here, Olivia. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Find us on Twitter and work out your Trump schmerz. I'm page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then, come on. Head on over to Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and kick off the new year by becoming a Slate Plus member. Plus, members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. I gotta say, feels good to listen to a podcast ad-free. For only $35 for the first year, and just divide $35 by 365, and you're going to be shocked at how little you're spending a day. You will be supporting our work. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Today, our show was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by June Thomas. 
I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.